This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. February is the month where we, or at least I, start to feel like it might be time for winter to start winding things down. Of course, we have a ways to go before that happens. But there are signs of hope. I've had a few early crocuses pop up and bloom. They're certainly eager, but who can blame them? Always keeping an eye open for bookish things, a library stand, the sort that you see with a dictionary or atlas on top of it, popped up for sale locally at a hard-to-resist price. I didn't resist, and now the stand holds the two-volume new shorter Oxford English Dictionary that I thrifted a few weeks ago. Additional reference books will drift to its shelves as time goes on. Our 2023 cultural debris excursions are firming up. In July, we travel to Salzburg and Oberammergau on successive weeks. In October and November, we journey to Siena and Florence in Tuscany, then back to Genoa and Liguria. Travelers can choose one week or both, depending on interest. If you do have interest, please let me know at culturaldebris at gmail.com. We are working through some final logistics, but it's not too soon to let us know you would like more information. Groups are intentionally small at around six guests each week. You may have noticed a new Cultural Debris logo in your podcast feed. I want to thank graphic artist Rachel Sinclair for her work making what was in my head look good. You can find her on Twitter at SinclairArt. There is a link in show notes. If you enjoy Cultural Debris, I would ask you to consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash culturaldebris. There are different levels of support, and any support level is most appreciated completely free for you is leaving a five-star rating and a positive review on your podcast app. It helps other folks find the podcast. The episode's poem is from William Butler Yeats, When You Were Old. When you are old and gray and full of sleep and nodding by the fire, take down this book and slowly read and dream of the soft look your eyes had once and of their shadows deep. How many loved your moments of glad grace, and loved your beauty with love false or true. But one man loved the pilgrim soul in you, and loved the sorrow of your changing face. And bending down beside the glowing bars, murmur a little sadly, how love fled and paced upon the mountains overhead, and hid his face amid a crowd of stars. My guest is Kevin Gutzman, professor of history at Western Connecticut State University. He has published half a dozen books on Jefferson Madison and the Constitution. His latest book is The Jeffersonians, which is the focus of our interview. Please join me as I talk with Kevin Gutzman. Kevin Gutzman, welcome to Cultural Debris. Happy to be here. It is good to have you with us, and you have a new book just hot off the press uh, called The Jeffersonians, and it continues a string of books by you about Jefferson and his associates, uh, most recently Thomas Jefferson Revolutionary, uh, prior to, uh, to the new Jeffersonians book. What makes Thomas Jefferson worth studying and writing about? Ah, well, his way of understanding the American polity remains a model for many Americans. It's one that's been, well, it's one the influence of which has been undermined over the last century in particular, but one that I think uh, it would benefit Americans to, to be more completely familiar with. So I keep trying to drive the point home in various fora, <laughs> and in if we in, would just listen in numerous of my books, yeah. Well, I think in particular the principle of federalism—that is, uh, decentralization, or what in Catholic theology is called subsidiarity—which Jefferson, after republicanism, which was a given for him, was the primary principle he 
contended for in American politics. Um, I think that would benefit us greatly uh, to see reinvigorated nowadays in the United States. So that's one practical purpose behind my work, I suppose. But the other thing is that um, I think there's not a not a coordinated effort, but there's obviously a strong impulse in America nowadays to undermine the respect or to to uh, chip away at the respect that Americans have for the people who made the country. And I think to a large degree that's been uh, achieved by distorting people's recollection of them. And so uh, part of what I'm working on, I suppose, is, is just recalling the reality of these people I write about to Americans' attention. Well, I, I very much appreciate and sympathize with that endeavor. Uh, Jefferson, Jefferson's always, uh, well, I guess he's always an interesting figure, but in my observation, at least my impression, I'll, I'll put it that way, of, of the current kind of political view of Jefferson is that on the right, very people tend to see, uh, sort of dismiss him as... Um, a uh, sort of a liberal French revolutionary type and uh, sort of embrace more of the Hamiltonian or what they understand to be the Hamiltonian vision. Uh, and on the left, uh, he's kind of dismissed as a uh, Southern white uh, slave owning patriarch that, that we don't need to listen to. Um, what, what would you say to those critiques? Well, I think, it, you've described them fairly. Um, it seems to me that the Hamiltonian model of government and society really was not the one for which the American Revolution was fought. And that's proven by the fact that in the lifetime of the people who fought the revolution, Hamilton's party essentially ceased to exist. So by the end of the story I tell in my book, um, James Monroe's being being reelected president with all but one electoral vote, and the one elector who voted against him was a fellow Republican. So the the Federalist Party had essentially vanished, and the reason for that was that people just decided, you know, this is really the way we wanted our government to work when we made the revolution. We wanted it to be highly decentralized. We wanted it to um, have very few purposes. We wanted it essentially to protect us in going out and making our own way in the economy. And we wanted the government as well to uh, leave it to us to decide what kind of local, what kinds of local communities we'd have. And of course, we also didn't want the government to be encouraging uh, formation of some new American aristocracy on the model of the British, which famously or infamously, depending how you look at it, it is what, uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton expl- explained that he wanted in a day-long speech on June 18, 1787 in the Philadelphia <laughs> Convention. So people knew this at the time. And part of the story I tell in my book, of course, is that while the Republicans were winning all the elections, um, John Marshall is writing Hamiltonianism into constitutional law. So right. I don't say this in the book, but uh, people who, like me, have been through law school know that and people who've studied constitutional law in college or in in a push i guess know that today in every law school in america one begins with some of the seminal opinions of chief justice john marshall which jefferson and his allies decried at the time but which as jefferson lamented the constitution didn't leave the voting majority any way immediately to correct (laughs) so there's a, a bit of an ironic element to the story i tell in the book so that raises a couple of questions, um, I guess, and, and maybe you've you've already partly answered that. But uh, on the one hand, we have at the end of this um, this Virginia dynasty of of Jeffersonians, the quarter century of Jeffersonian rule, essentially. Uh, you have this consensus. You have essentially a uniparty state, I guess, if you want to put it that way. I mean, the Federalists are gone, uh, essentially, although 
you know, we all we know that there are fissures built into that that will that will give birth to the second two party system. But um, and and yet, uh, despite that consensus, I as as you pointed out, the Jeffersonians really don't the Jeffersonian ideal really doesn't hold sway at all today. So. Uh, so what happened and, and was Jefferson and Jeffersonianism trumped at the very beginning by Marbury versus Madison? Well, what happened uh, leading up to the situation in which we find ourselves today is, of course, there was the Great Depression and the Democrats won five consecutive presidential elections. And that meant the Supreme Court was in the federal circuit courts were dominated for generations by um, Democrats who stood for the idea that essentially Hamilton hadn't gone far enough. The government needed to be more centralized than he had in mind. And that's where we find ourselves today. We've, we've got now for the first time since 1937, I guess after 80, what, 82, 83, 84 years, uh, we, we've got a Supreme Court majority that doesn't stand for the idea that the federal government has essentially whatever power it decides it wants to exercise. So um, I guess that's a short answer to the, to the question how we ended up where we are today. There, it's somewhat ironic, of course, that huh, conceding these powers to the central government didn't didn't answer the immediate problem. That is, it didn't resolve the Great Depression. Um, but we end up with this situation now in which we have inertial existence of a lot of centralization, not only in con law, but in the enormous administrative state in the United States and, and in the, in the what, well, what libertarians call the welfare warfare state, right? So um, if if you want to reclaim something like the, the strongly decentralized polity, the, the highly localized self-government that people fought the revolution for, the first thing you have to do is, is remind Americans of it. That's my point. That's, I guess, an underlying goal. I mean, I, of course, I think the story I tell in this book in particular is inherently interesting, but it does have this practical applicability to it. So one can... Right. You know, I this of this is really kind of my favorite era of American history to study, and that in the, the antebellum period leading up the I guess sort of between sort of the New Republic and antebellum period to me is the most interesting uh, part of of American history, and I guess part of that is because I feel like that that that's when um, and I haven't necessarily consciously. Uh, liked it for this reason, but it probably is underlying that it's, it does sort of feel like that was the way it was supposed to be, right? Uh, that the the way the government was supposed to to operate, or at least as close a, of an approximation as we could we could reasonably get to it. Well, that's that's certainly the way I understand it, um, and it's certainly the way that that people like Jefferson and Madison understood it, and. Um, so the book begins with a detailed consideration of Jefferson's first inaugural address in 1801. Mm -hmm. And um, essentially, he lays out what, what are going to be the principles of his administration. And of course, as he's doing that, he's basically telling people what he thinks the American Revolution was about. You know, so he, he, along the way in his first inaugural address, he says we've called by different names, brethren of the same principle. We're all Republicans. We're all Federalists. He thinks the party division of the 1790s has been artificial. It's been kind of ginned up. It was an accident that, that um, Hamilton found himself uh, in the good graces of President Washington and was able to push through what Jefferson thinks of as a kind of a foreign uh, model of, of uh, administration. And now finally, this is, he thinks, passed. And we're going to be back where we were before. We're going to have uh, the happiness of life in which fellow patriots are, are all friends. So the idea that there shouldn't be political parties really is central to Jefferson's uh, thinking about government. And other people 
in his movement, John Taylor of Caroline, uh, James Monroe, who, when he's president, does not take steps to maintain the party division that nowadays we'd think would be normal uh, steps for a president to take. Um, they all have the idea that, you know, the way this was supposed to work out was we would end the revolution, we would get rid of British government, we would have our own happy polity here, and Americans would have what Jefferson elsewhere called fellow feeling, right? So uh, you kind of imagine a situation in which the polity isn't politically and intellectually divided the way it is, say, today. Um, Jefferson thought that should be considered aberrant. That should be considered uh, a, a situation that's not normal, that, that, that isn't one we're going to have to endure in the future. So there's a bit of, you might think, well, that's kind of Pollyanna way to think about this. And of course, in political science classes all over the country, people are taught, well, one of the great strengths of the American political system is we have these two very old parties. One of them is the oldest party in the world. Um, but uh, that's, <laughs> I think that would be highly disappointing to people like Jefferson. Actually, by the end of the book, not to give too much away, but by the end of the book, Jefferson's already somewhat unhappy with the way things are turning. So uh, there is there is this hopeful element to the story I tell in the Jeffersonians, but there's also kind of augury of things that are going to come. Well, you mentioned his inaugural, his first inaugural, and right. he does there have uh, have that that very famous line. I mean, it's a probably it's one of one of Jefferson's most quoted lines, I guess. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. It was it was in many ways a, a very conciliatory, magnanimous uh, type of address. I mean, right. he he's coming back essentially kind of out of exile in a sense. And there certainly was some feeling uh, at least I, w- I would assume among among some that we need to kind of we need to impose ourselves on this, but that's not really the way Jefferson chose to deal with it. Uh, how disappointing maybe was that, or, or and maybe should Jefferson have been? Maybe he should have been harsher in the way he dealt with. Well, it. there were some people in his political movement. For example, uh, there was a U.S. senator from Virginia who, after a few months of Jefferson's uh, first term, wrote him a lengthy letter in which he said, you know, um, the people who were on our side in the late contest are expecting a pretty general purgation of office, right? So <laughs> what he wanted was for, for all the Federalist officeholders, which meant, of course, everybody in federal government, just to right. be booted out and immediately replaced with Republicans. And so people who had that opinion, and there were some in Jefferson's movement, some high-ranking people, um, they were going to be disappointed because that wasn't the way Jefferson thought things ought to work. We shouldn't have the kind of Jacksonian era spoils system in which a Democrat wins the election and every postmaster in America is fired and replaced with a Whig, and then a Whig wins the election and every—I mean, replaced with a Democrat, and then a Whig wins the election and every postmaster is fired and replaced with a Whig. You know, so uh, there, yes, there was an impulse to do that, but. Again, Jefferson's idea was, no, this isn't the way things ought to work, that this past little interregnum here we've had of control of the, of the federal government by, he thought, the Hamiltonian impulse, um, should, be, should have been temporary. That should have been just a kind of passing phase. And now we're going to be on to the mature uh, situation in the United States in which we don't have these party contests. We don't have built-in animosity towards people we haven't met on the basis of their party identification, um, we really have kind of fellow feeling. The fellow patriots should be uh, friendly toward each other. And, and he, he said that and acted on that idea over and over again. Going back to the, the idea of the, of the party system, uh, and you don't dwell uh, on this part uh, of it, but you do reference it some, the, the various machinations of, uh, of Burr uh, almost being elected president. And, and really the reason why he almost was, was because there was this two-party system developed that the founders didn't foresee. And so, uh, you know, this, this Jeffersonian moment, I guess, was almost derailed 
by the two-party system that um, that Jefferson himself loathed. Well, that's true. That's true. One thing, I, one point I make clearly in the book uh, is that there's no evidence that Burr tried to make a deal with Federalists. So if he did a smart lawyer that he was, he didn't leave any kind of a record of it. And, <laughs> and none of the Federalists recalled it later either. So apparently that didn't happen. But Jefferson and fellow Republicans thought that Burr should have instantly said, well, um, since we have this tie, which is a, a kind of a funny outcome and not, not one anybody anticipated, um, it really, the outgoing Federalist controlled Congress, that's the outgoing Federalist controlled House of Representatives that's deciding this issue should choose Jefferson because everybody knows Republicans wanted him to be the presidential candidate and me to be the vice presidential candidate. Burr, however, neither, I think, neither tried to make a deal that would uh, that would see him ushered into the presidency, nor disavowed a desire to become president. <laughs> and so Jefferson, essentially, it seems, just kind of wrote him out of the party uh, from the beginning. He thought that this was wrong, and he figured there had been some kind of backstage maneuvering going on, even though... Um, as I say, I don't think there's any evidence that there was. And if, if there had been, one would think that Federalists would have left a record of it, but they, they were no more inclined to do that than he was. So um, it was an odd situation that the, that the two parties found themselves in, that uh, because every Republican elector voted both for Jefferson and for Burr, you ended up with a tie, and there was, before the 11th Amendment, no distinction made by electors between their votes for a presidential candidate and their votes for a vice presidential candidate. So, yes, that's the reason why this outcome happened, as you said, is because people hadn't foreseen that there'd be a two-party system. So people in the Philadelphia Convention weren't thinking of that as a normal development either. They, Even though Jefferson wasn't there, um, and... People like Russell Kirk have said, well, it's a good thing he wasn't there. Um, <laughs> so even though Jefferson wasn't there, uh, he apparently shared their attitudes about that general issue. Well, I do tend to be a little more sympathetic um, to Jefferson than Dr. Kirk was. And, uh, and that's probably, uh, probably somewhat due to my southern sympathies and uh, you know as as a kentuckian uh, virginia is our mother state so uh, you know give a, a little bit of uh, of of tip of the hat to uh, to the uh, the old dominion state speaking of which so why why virginia so uh, we have the jeffersonians obviously uh, three presidents two term presidents in a row from from virginia plus um outside of that jeffersonian dynasty we have the virginia dynasty at large with Je with washington uh and adams being the only one term blip in, in that in that um you know what almost 40 i guess over 40 years what um what was it about Virginia that allowed them to have such an influence in the early part of the Republic? Well, first thing is uh, just thinking about Virginia in the abstract at the time. Uh, Virginia, of course, was the first English British colony in the world. And so it was the oldest of the American states. It was by far the most extensive of the American states. It had the most white people. It had the most black people. After the revolutionary movement kind of uh, grew larger than Massachusetts, it was obvious that Virginia was going to play a significant role. And in fact, people, of course, from Massachusetts were important movers in having a Virginian Washington chosen to be the commander in chief of the Continental Army. And, but even before that, there had been cooperation between um, people in Virginia and the Patriot movement in Massachusetts in response to various moves that the British were taking against what people in North America understood as their rights. So um, there just was kind of an inertial 
acceptance of the idea that, well, the oldest, most extensive, most populous, highly prosperous Virginia with, by the way, another thing it had was a very old um, political tradition in the state of kind of deferential uh, granting of leadership positions to the small educated elite. Um, and those people were going to find ready acceptance uh, in not only the Continental Congress and the Continental Army, but eventually in the Philadelphia Convention and in the federal government. So I think those are the, the pr primary reasons. Uh, Virginian, uh, prominent Virginian, somebody who was who was educated and wealthy and had uh, time for it, thought that he had a duty to um, be in political life. In fact, I show in the book that at one point, Monroe, James Monroe, wrote to his friend John Taylor and said, essentially, uh, you know, you're wealthy. You should be in politics. Why are you retired? So <laughs> there, there was a kind of ethic of uh, civic service among the Virginia leadership and that meant that prominent people uh, rarely were going to go into politics and then quit. Um, well, in other states, of course, they might well do that. So those are some of the reasons. Those, I think, are the main reasons. And, of course, once the Virginia leadership of the federal government began, people saw, well, it, it, this is working pretty well. And they just kept electing them. Of course, there wasn't, at least in in the early days of uh, of Jefferson's term, there there was not, um, especially among the the New England Federalists who were who were still hanging on at that early stage. Uh, there was not unanimous support for Jefferson, and and you talk about kind of the flashpoint of uh, of the Louisiana Purchase, um, which caused a lot of these uh, sort of dyed-in-the-wool Federalists to start sounding very Jeffersonian in their constitutional interpretation. Right. I, I th actually, I think they have, uh, they had a, an argument that is worthy of being recalled, right? So their, their point was when, when the Louisiana Purchase came before the Senate, um, you know, we agreed to be in a union with the other states, but we didn't agree to this. We didn't agree for there to be just a sea of new states to the west of the the seaboard states, all of which were going to have something like the same political economy as the South, right? We didn't we didn't agree to be permanently sunk and have essentially no influence in this gigantic entity that that the Louisiana Purchase is going to make of the United States, and I think that's true. They they have not agreed to be reduced to kind of tributaries of, of Virginia or of the greater South, but that's certainly the prospect they saw for themselves. So, um, you know, often we tend to think about political issues as, as being kind of free agents, as having kind of lives of their own. But I think another thing to bear in mind when we look back on the past, uh, the past of our own country is, um, People may have had other motivations in putting forward what we think were the main political issues of the time. And one issue that's very important in American history, although often uh, below the radar, is uh, New England sectionalism. That is a kind of right. defensive mindedness, a constant search for some issue that could be brought up to uh, lay low this what seemed a perpetual rulership. In fact, I. One time I was doing research in the archives of what was then called the Virginia Historical Society. It's now the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And I came across a, an editorial that appeared in the Hartford Current in 1805, I think, 1806, something like that. And it was, uh, the argument was essentially, we noticed that the Virginians not only win the presidential elections, but then they, they appoint each other to the top cabinet posts. And we have Virginia as <laughs> chief justice and, and, you know, on and on about how terrible this is. And when you get to the end of it, the editor says, hey, hey uh, Connecticut Republicans, isn't there one of you who has any ability? Do they have to <laughs> only themselves? You know, which actually uh, 
you might think a, a Connecticut Republican might have found an, uh, an appealing argument, even if only on the basis of his own pride. So, uh, yeah, there was that. There was definitely a, a feeling among people in New England. I'm not saying it's, it was a majority feeling, but there was a very strong current of opinion in New England that uh, this was just too much. And by the end of the book, of course, Monroe, like Jefferson, thought that there shouldn't be party division. And one, one reason there's party division is that presidents, just take President Biden today, right? He's not only the president of the United States, he's head of the Democratic Party. So when he's, he's thinking about his own duties as president of the United States under the Constitution, but he's also thinking about how to reinforce the Democratic Party. And um, on the other hand, so that's essential to the ex ongoing existence of our two-party system, that the president is this, this leading agent of whichever of the two parties controls the White House at the time. Monroe, like Jefferson, apparently didn't think there really ought to be a two-party system. And so in his administration, he didn't put a, a Virginian into a prominent position in his cabinet, I think, because he didn't think there should be an obvious Virginian successor to himself. So one gets around to the election of 1824 at the end of the book and finds that, well, in the absence of any obvious Virginian, everybody <laughs> who's anybody in, in the federal political system runs for, you know, becomes a presidential candidate in 1824, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of War, the Speaker of the House, General Jackson, anybody who's, who's thinking, well, I'm not from Virginia, this is my chance. Um, <laughs> and of course, the fact that they thought, they seem to have thought this because there wasn't an obvious Virginian candidate underscores that Hartford Current article's position, underscores the fact that you know, this is a widely held impression and people like Monroe were right to think there's something vaguely unhealthy about it after a while. You know, we don't want to have four two-term Virginia presidents, five, what's the end? Well, it may have been better off that way, but... Maybe. Uh, <laughs> Certainly, but Jefferson was not thrilled with, uh, with the program of Monroe's successor, as I show at the end of the book. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. Getting back, just as an aside, uh, not to get too derailed on this, but the, the issue of, uh, of New England sectionalism, it's, one, is, it, it's an issue that um, long ago in the last century in my um, graduate studies, my old professor Clyde Wilson, uh, would often make note that uh, so the Southern position is always referred to as sectionalism, but the Northern position rarely is that the, that the Northerners had, had kind of successfully defined their position as sort of the normative one and that the Southerners were, were dissenters and so forth. Right. But, but one of the things that we do see in your book, uh, starting off in, in during the, during the time, um, of, of the Louisiana purchase, we have the, the, uh, Essex Junto. Uh, this we have this uh, this secessionist movement, and then of course later there's the Hartford Convention a decade later during War of eighteen twelve, and so these early secessionist movements were actually uh, New England secessionist movies. They were movements. They weren't Southern secessionist movements. Yeah, they weren't only New England either. Actually, Governor Morris was was in correspondence with prominent people from Massachusetts about the idea of secession and his role in it was going to be spurring New York cooperation in this. So a lot of people in the Northeast had the idea that a couple of generations of newing of Virginia presidents were enough, right? Why, why do we need, and not only that, of course, but they didn't like, in general, they didn't like the foreign policy of the Republican party, which uh, in not taking a pro-British stand in the in relation to the to the Napoleonic Wars, seemed to them to be pro pro French. That is, um, the sectionalists in New England, the leading sectionalists like Timothy Pickering, for example, who at one point was Washington's Secretary of State and then was a U.S. Senator, and um, people like that thought that Napoleon was obviously an evil, and and the British were fighting God's fight, and America should be on British side. But the Jeffersonian position was, no, we should stay out of this altogether, right? We're, we're still a kind of a, at least in, 
in military terms, they were thinking we're still just a, a small, weak actor, and we can't decide the outcome of the Napoleonic Wars, but we could certainly get our own nose bloodied if we stuck our face into this. So uh, besides that, of course, participating in the, in the wars of the French Revolution would have involved raising taxes and building up the military and more centralization of the government and essentially revivifying the old Hamiltonian um, political economy. And that was exactly what people like Jefferson, Madison, Monroe wanted not to do. Well, yeah. So speaking of that, and let's let's talk a little bit about the War of eighteen twelve because uh, <laughs> I guess I guess we we would say that that that's the major um, international incident <laughs> that during during this period uh, was it something that that was a blunder or was it necessary uh, in order to defend uh, U.S. Uh, pride and legitimacy uh what what was the right answer there and did the did the jeffersonians make make the right choice well they made more than one choice one choice they made was not to be prepared for war right so i think i say at one point in the book that of course george george washington famously had said that if you want to avoid war prepare for it and jefferson rejected that idea right if you want to have a standing good, armies, yeah. If you want to have a good and standing navy and standing tax system, and if if you want to have uh, a good polity, he thought um, he said again in his first inaugural address, uh, the federal government should not take from labor the bread which it has earned. Right, insofar as it's unnecessary to do so, the federal government shouldn't tax people. And uh, this was a doctrinaire position, and one that all three of these fellows the book is about, um, saw merit in. So when the, when Madison gave his, uh, sent his address up to Capitol Hill, uh, which is often called Madison's war address, but it, it actually didn't call on Congress to declare war. It, it didn't say we need to declare war. It, it just laid out the position and then concluded more or less with and so in fine, we find a situation in which the British are at war with the United States, but the United States are not at war with Great Britain. <laughs> so it's up to you to, to make the decision what to do about this, right? Um, Madison didn't think it was for presidents to be telling Congress what policy to adopt. He thought he was the chief executive, not the legislative uh, shepherd of the sheep on Capitol Hill. So anyway, um, there were people even in the Republican Party who said, well, you know, maybe... Maybe we have these problems, but how can you go to war with Britain? We don't have any men. You don't have any ships. You, you don't have any money, right? And this was all true. Uh, not, right. that there were, not that there were zero men in the army or zero ships in the Navy, but it was pretty close to that. So the, what they did was declare war and then try to get ready for it, which, of course, nowadays seems to have been entirely foolhardy. And a lot of people thought it was foolhardy at the time. And what it led to was foreign army um, invading the country, taking control of Washington, D.C., burning down the Capitol, burning down the White House, burning down the State Department, the Treasury Department, the War Department. Um, It was a total debacle. The the performance of the army, leaving aside General Jackson, who stood out because he was competent, um, (laughs) the, the, (laughs) the performance of major army leaders in the War of 1812 was just miserable. And part of the reason for this seems to have been that uh, the the attitude that the leading Republicans had about how easy it would be. In fact, Jefferson, I think it was, it may have been Monroe, but I think it was Jefferson who said, um, you know, this war would be a matter of just a couple of weeks of marching. He thought American armies could be launched across the Canadian border and within a couple of weeks they would have taken Quebec and Montreal and that would, you know, then America could sue for peace. Right, which was, shall we say, not what happened. Well, I one of the things that struck me, uh, and I don't recall having seen this before, but you you make mention that there was the suggestion by Madison and I Gallatin, I think, that Henry Clay be put in charge of of new troops, and that right, and that finally they decided that he was just too indispensable 
uh, of a legislator, but as someone who lives not too far, uh, a couple of miles maybe from where uh, Henry Clay's home is, the idea of Clay being sent out to lead to lead new troops doesn't strike me as the wisest choice, perhaps. Well, it's just not serious. And it underscores right. what I was saying before, that these guys thought that it, fighting a war was just kind of a lark. You didn't need to have professionals. Um, back to what I was saying a few minutes ago, um, you know, Washington said, if you want to avoid war, prepare for war. And the, the Jeffersonian position was, we'll raise taxes to pay for war when we need an army. So uh, you couldn't do that. The British already had an army. They had, they had experienced professional leadership. They had experienced professional men in the ranks. They had, a, they had the best Navy in the world. It was gigantic. And so the whole thing was just kind of bound to be a debacle, given that the United States went into the war completely unprepared and had done so as a matter of policy. Well, so this raises the question then, and as you and I are both sympathetic to Jeffersonian principles and and uh, and the understanding that um, a militarized society can also lead to a, a lot of problems, as I think we have experienced in the past, well, why, some some decades or century or so, uh, is this is this an inherent flaw? in Jeffersonian principles and Jeffersonian thinking that it's just not realistic. And what's, what's the answer to that? What's the right balance between being naively unprepared and finding yourself in a war with the greatest superpower in the world uh, and having a, a militarized, as you referred to earlier, as, you know, the war, welfare warfare state um, that we kind of see today. So what's What's the right answer there? Well, one reason why the Republicans didn't find the idea of preparing for war before declaring it congenial was that doing so would have required bringing the warships that and the tax policy that the Federalists had adopted during the Adams administration out of mothballs, right? So they would have had to concede that to some extent they'd been mistaken, Right. And being politicians, uh, you know, being normal people, they didn't like <laughs> the idea of, of admitting they'd been mistaken. Maybe they didn't, you know, maybe it didn't even cross their minds that it might be better to prepare before declaring a war on, on the British, um, at least prepare in some sense to try to identify military leaders who could do the job. But... Uh, to prepare some kind of plan of operations. So Madison, I show in the section of the book about his administration, just just failed utterly as, as a war president. It's, it's hard to exaggerate the extent to which he was a fish out of water in that role. Um, I think it's definitely the low point of his otherwise highly illustrious career. Well, it, it, of course, it was a situation since I mean, since the United States had been founded, uh, that was that was really unprecedented. I mean, they hadn't found themselves in a war before. I mean, obviously, uh, Revolutionary War, but as a kind of established functioning nation, he was he was the first, um, and it seems as though. Um, that Jeffersonian principles d does not lend one to be a, perhaps a great, a great military president, um, great war president. But, um, but it, you know, it does seem on the one hand, I, I'm sympathetic to the arguments that the U S sort of found itself as a young nation, kind of in a, a little bit of a legitimacy crisis. Are they going to allow themselves to be kind of pushed around? Right. Um, or, uh, on the other hand, uh, are they really prepared to do it? Obviously, they weren't prepared to do it. Um, but they at least they, they kind of, I guess, dodge the bullet and get get a status quo antebellum, despite having their capital burned down. That was sort of a, a negative, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, the U.S. Navy performed very well in the War of 1812, which 
must have seemed ironic to Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, uh, certainly Gallatin, who had become Treasury Secretary and remains to the present the longest serving major cabinet officer in American history. He was, he was Treasury Secretary for over 11 years. Um, he, he was chosen by Jefferson to be Treasury Secretary partly because he had been the chief opponent of naval spending during the Adams administration, <laughs> right? So <laughs> it's, it's ironic that the, besides, again, General Jackson, who proved highly competent, uh, if a bit of a cutthroat in the South during the war, um, the U.S. Navy, although it had very few ships, uh, performed very well in the war. And one, one ongoing result of the War of 1812 is that the, the boundary between the United States and Canada is the longest undefended boundary in the world in history. And it has been ever since the War of 1812. We essentially agreed with the British, um, you know, we won't keep the Great Lakes um, fortified. And they agreed the same thing. And we'd limit the number of warships to only a handful uh, on those lakes. And so that's that was a positive result. But it's not one really that the Republican leadership uh, deserved because if they had had their way, there would have been even fewer warships in the U.S. Navy than there than there were when the war started. So um, I think it's fair to say that the Jeffersonians were were ideological in this in this regard that they went further than prudence, uh, prudence hesitance to have a self perpetuating state. Uh, should have led them. They they really got bound up in the ideology of having uh, essentially no taxes, no military, you know, no threat of uh, disruption of the civilian society they hope to have. Well, I, I guess I'll uh, as as a uh, as a good Kirkian, I'll you know, prudence is uh, should should also always be taken into account, as as Burke would tell us, right? Right. Uh, that that you you can't be um, you can't become so hidebound that you refuse to recognize reality, and that really seems to be, uh, I guess, a, a bit of a a bit of a gaping hole in in their understanding their approach. I guess. Uh, the the challenge for somebody with sort of those those principles is how much and how much is too much you know and right. uh, and again i guess those are prudential decisions um, and it's a difficult issue jefferson right. we we don't want to leave a cartoon impression that that jefferson was completely unrealistic in this area so for example he's responsible for the fact that we have the us military academy at west point right so that's that's he he saw that there needed to be a professional officer corps. Of course, it would be a very it would be a very tiny one, but there needed to be one, and uh, that traces back to him. But again, when it comes to uh, just leaving the country essentially completely unprepared uh, for the war, and then going ahead and declaring it without making any preliminary preparation, um, I don't know how you could say anything. But this was just a completely imprudent. In fact, we find a situation during, I, I explain in the book, we find a situation during the War of 1812 in which Madison gets to his second Secretary of War and he tells him to prepare the approaches to, this, to the town of Washington, D.C. And the Secretary puts off doing anything about it. And several months later, Madison says to him, uh, what about the approaches? Have you prepared defensive positions? You know, have you, And the guy says to him, his name is Armstrong. He's a New Yorker. He says to Madison, well, you know, if the British were to head up Chesapeake Bay, they wouldn't take a detour up to Washington, D.C., this little village here. They'd, <laughs> they'd be on their way to Baltimore. And Madison doesn't ensure that the fellow actually does what he's twice commanded him to do. And the result of this is, one result of this is that essentially there aren't major defensive positions prepared for the United States military to take as uh, the eventuality that Madison had foreseen transpires. So it's, it's just a debacle. And, you know, you'd think after the first time the fellow had been told point blank by the president to do this and then not done it, he'd, he'd have been removed from office. Certainly the second time he should have been removed from office, but nope, there he was. 
there he was when the foreign army got to the capital. Well, you've you've mentioned inertia a couple of times that the inertia of um, government officials is 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 great. That's an eternal uh, problem. I think right. I think we have. So uh, of the three uh, of the three Jeffersonians you write about, I mean, obviously Jefferson is is the primary because he's the one who gives his name to the entire uh, political movement. Madison, we all understand uh, at least you know by reputation is the the, the father of the Constitution and uh, is a great uh, you know author of, of so many Federalist papers, a great political thinker. Monroe is kind of the the other guy <laughs> of the three of them, right? He's uh, serves two terms, um, but uh, but he's he's also serves during this time of um, the the era of good feeling, right? It was kind of a it was in a lot of ways what the Jeffersonians sort of wanted things to be, but yet uh, Monroe Monroe seems to suffer maybe a little bit by reputation. Is that fair? Uh, how does Monroe stack up? Well, I think he's the most successful president of these three fellows. It is true that he's a less attractive subject for historians and political scientists because he's just not as good a writer as the other two guys. Uh, by far, he's inferior to them in that sense, but his presidency is a huge success. So, um, how to how to evaluate it? Well, one one way to do it is by looking at what his war secretary, one of his two chief advisors, John C. Calhoun, later said of Monroe. In retrospect, he said, "You know, it's true that he he wasn't brilliant, right? But on the other hand, he had very good judgment, and he would weigh a question and almost invariably come on a major question to the right decision, which." Uh, you know, do you want that or do you want the kind of reasoning you find in Federalist 10, right? Which one's better? So I think if you're choosing a president, you want a fellow who's going to have good judgment, who's going to recognize that maybe he's not a genius, but on the other hand, he can have Quincy Adams and Calhoun as his two chief advisors and get really good advice and then make good decisions. So that's essentially what Monroe did. He, he Nobody's going to, you know, trumpet his uh, second inaugural address, but on the other hand, there are several significant achievements of his administration that that benefit us mightily even now. So we touched on this some at the beginning, um, but looking back on this period, and you know, you've you've mentioned that in part you're writing on on this period and this movement as a way of reminder for us. Um, we live in a very different world than they lived in, obviously. Uh, you know, two, 200 years later, things are, things are a whole lot different. They couldn't have imagined things that we have. Um, we live in an age of mass media, social media. Uh, what are the enduring principles, though, that we might be able to take from them? Are are there things that we can that we can learn from the Jeffersonians that would that would benefit us that are that are even possible to employ, or have we have have we moved past uh, the practicality of that? Well, uh, you know, when you think about the world empire that the United States is at the center of now, uh, you, you find that the, the government and the political economy of the United States are just completely different from the one that these people lived with at the beginning of the 19th century. On the other hand, there are important principles that, that they were devoted to, and, and they included um, being loath to have military involvement. Uh, now, I've been saying for the last several minutes that I think they carried this principle, at least Jefferson and Madison carried this principle too far, but uh, being loath to have military involvement um, while realistically preparing for it in case it's necessary does seem to me to be um, an idea whose time never left. So <laughs> we could stand to see that resuscitated. Um, another one, of course, is this decentralization principle. Most of us we're never going to be in Congress. We're never going to be cabinet officers, vice president, president, chief justice. But if the 
governmental system of the United States were still as highly decentralized as it was at that in those days and as it was intended to be by the people who ratified the Constitution, as it was expected to be by them, then each of us could have more say over his own life than he does now, right? So that's a very important principle, I think. Um, there's also the idea that, well, the, one, a couple of other kinds of questions that come up repeatedly in the book have to do with the federal government's relationship to the American Indians and what's going to happen with the institution of slavery. And both, all three of these fellows um, have, of course, some of the color of their own age uh, in relation to Indians and, and um, African people who live in North America. But on the other hand, they also have uh, forward-leaning attitudes about these questions that may be surprising to people. So, for example, I, I start the book, as I said before, with a, a detailed consideration of Jefferson's first inaugural address, and then I discuss events that were occurring around Richmond just as the election of 1800 uh, was coming to a head. I'm not going to say what those events were, but um, essentially Jefferson, and, who's the vice president and presidential candidate of the Republicans, and Monroe, who's the governor of Virginia, have two things in mind. One is apparently Monroe was preparing to use the Virginia militia to march on Washington and, and install what the man he considered to be the people's choice in case the outgoing Federalist House came to the wrong conclusion. And actually, uh, apparently the governor of Pennsylvania was going to help him in this. Um, but another thing that was going on was there was a substantial event uh, in and around Richmond involving slavery, the future of slavery in Virginia. And we see a correspondence between Jefferson and Monroe that's very, very forward-looking on this on this issue, very forward-looking on related matters, and I think very interesting and totally unlike what one hears in popular media nowadays or even in, nowadays or even in some, uh, some academic precincts. So that's of interest in this story too, I think. Yeah, I think that, that I think that's an important point to make is that so, so much of the discourse, if we can even call it that about people, uh, figures from this period, like Jefferson and Madison and, um, and even Washington, that there there are um, really caricatures uh, yes. of of understanding of of these individuals. I mean, uh, and highly anachronistic, right? Correct. Yes, right. very anachronistic. Um, but these were these were men who um, were were dealing with real life immediate issues and trying to figure a way out of them. You make uh, not to get too far into that, but you make a point at the, towards the end of the book about Lafayette urging all of them over, over the years to, to uh, emancipate their slaves. And, and yet Jefferson and Monroe find themselves in, in a uh, financial situation where they literally can't do that. Uh, and uh, again, that's not to excuse the institution at all, but simply to uh, to recognize that there that there were a, a lot of things going on uh, surrounding those issues and the issue of slavery and and also dealing with Indian the Indian question out west and so forth. Right. I, well, I think anybody who reads this book with a fair mind uh, will conclude that all three of these guys took substantial steps against slavery. It, it wasn't just talk. It's not just some kind of uh, historic myth that Americans have that they've comforted themselves with. Uh, rather, it's a it's a reality. There, there. So again, I don't want to give away the story, uh, but there are numerous substantial steps involving the future of slavery taken during these days, and largely at the behest of these three guys, who uh, in sequence are the leaders of their party. Well, I will uh, commend the book to uh, to everyone, the Jeffersonians, the visionary presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, uh, and it is available from St. Martin's Press. Where can uh, folks find you online and find more information about you? Well, they can find me on Twitter, at Kevin Gutzman, G-U-T-Z-M-A-N, or on Facebook. Also, um, they can 
take a look at my website, which is kevingutzman.com. That's again, G-U-T-Z-M-A-N. And there's information about this book on my website. There's information about my previous books. You'll see that uh, they do fit together. <laughs> this is my sixth. Four of them have been about Virginia in the revolution and early republic. And two of them about been about American constitutional history generally. I, before I went and got a an education at UVA, I got my PhD, I, I had been a lawyer. And so I still have a bit of the infection of uh, uh, fascination with constitutional matters. And of course, that's that's a good disposition to have if you're interested in, in this particular period, because um, even more than in our own time, constitutional matters were central to politics. So anyway, th- those are some places they can find further information about my work. And I will have links to all of those in show notes. People can pop down there and, uh, and, and click a button and, and be taken right to you. So, well, I appreciate you very much uh, for being on uh, the, the Jeffersonians and Jefferson himself, I think uh, to me are always fascinating. And uh, Jefferson, Jefferson is a, is a, uh, he's a figure that I think deserves ongoing attention and uh and defies the the caricatures that are that are often uh, often laid upon him i guess kevin thank you very much for being on you're entirely welcome i was happy to do it